0: What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is the Joe Pomp Show. I'm recording this episode on Sunday night, and what a weekend of sports it was. We had the men's final four, which was great. The championship game will be on Monday night. I just got done watching the women's national championship game between Iowa and LSU. It was an awesome game, great for the sport. There's probably 5 to 6 million people watching if I had to guess, which is one of, if not the most watched college basketball women's game of all time. So awesome for the sport. Obviously, the game wasn't as close as it should have been, but still a great game. I enjoyed it, and I think it was great for the sport overall. News also broke tonight that WWE is going to be acquired by Endeavor, according to CNBC. They're going to combine the UFC and WWE into one entity and go public with it. So that's something to keep your eye on. I will write more about that and podcast more about that later this week. But for today's episode, I want to talk about three things specifically. Number one, the NFL's annual meeting, and specifically Roger Goodell's pay package, his compensation package. I don't know if you guys saw, but he is re-upping his deal to be NFL commissioner for a few more years. I don't know if many people know exactly how much he gets paid and and what goes into that compensation package. We're going to talk about that first. Secondly, I want to talk about the NBA's new collective bargaining agreement, their new CBA. It brings labor peace throughout the rest of the decade, and it's important for several reasons, but also there's a few caveats in the deal, a few little notes that are really, really, really interesting for both players, owners, fans, et cetera. So we'll talk about that second. Third, I want to talk about Stephen Curry's new shoe deal with Under Armour. He's continuing his deal. He signed it last week. It could potentially be a lifetime deal, similar to what we've seen with LeBron and Nike. But again, there's a few interesting things in there that make it a unique agreement and something that fans should be interested in. So let's get right to it. All right. I'm sure everyone saw that the NFL held their annual league meeting last week. That's where all 32 team owners, head coaches, general managers met in Phoenix, Arizona at the Biltmore Hotel. And they're joined by a bunch of different people, mostly media personnel, reporters, insiders, but there's other people there too. This is a four-day event, and it's held on an annual basis. For those that are interested, the 2022 meeting was actually at the Breakers in Palm Beach. So it's not at the same location. They move it around, but it's usually somewhere warm. And they all discuss a variety of things, proposed rule changes, scheduling conflicts, disciplinary actions. Maybe they talk about the upcoming CBA, whatever it is. A good example is this year. So NFL owners at this year's meeting did a bunch of stuff, but mainly they debated about the ability to flex Thursday night football games. So you've probably seen a little bit about this online. The idea is that some Thursday night football games for prime just sucked this year. The NFL doesn't know who's going to be amazing or who's going to be good at the beginning of the year. They try to divvy up a bunch of the games to be in primetime, et cetera. Amazon's obviously paying a billion dollars a year, but last year they had a bunch of shitty games. So if you look at Amazon's viewership throughout the year, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they saw like basically on par viewership for Thursday night football over the last few years, despite being on a streaming services that's paywalled. So that was great. Week one, week two were amazing. Everyone's like, Oh, there's not really much of a dent. Maybe we're giving up like 5% of the audience, but we're making more money for the league, not a problem. But over time that drastically fell and it fell and it fell and it fell. And the reason really was that the matchups just stunk. It was games that no one wanted to watch. The teams weren't good and so forth. So The NFL is trying to flex those games. And for those that don't know how that works, the NFL does this today with Sunday night games. Basically, they tell you a week or two in advance, hey, you're going to play on Sunday night instead of Sunday. It's a little bit inconvenient for fans, even players, coaches, et cetera, because now you have to move uh, your schedule from 1 o'clock to 8 o'clock or whatever it is but not a huge deal. And it's great because the games are in primetime. They're good games. People want to stay up and watch them. They bring the highest ratings. TV partners are happy. NFL's happy. And players even like playing those games, right? So it's been great. The problem with Thursday night is, one, player safety. You claim you care about player safety. You change all these rules. You, You want to amend time at OTAs and mini camps and training camps and not let them hit as much. You say all these things. You want to control for concussions and so forth. But then you're going to make them play on essentially three days rest. And anyone who's ever heard NFL players talk about this, they liken it to a car crash once a week. They're like, we get in a really bad car crash once a week. On Monday morning, it's really hard to get out of bed. It takes me Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday to recover. I'm good to play on Sunday, and then I do it all over again. The off season is really where they use the most of their time to recover and fix their bodies. So they hate Thursday night games. If you look at the stats, there's more injuries on Thursday night games. The quality of play is lower. The points scored is less, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The games are just poor quality. But what the NFL wants to do is they want to fix the idea that you're going to be able to control the matchups and they want to move Sunday games to Thursday with at least, I, I think it was two weeks notice, two or three weeks notice. So they'll give you a few weeks notice and they'll move your game. Like I said, the one problem is player safety. Now you're going to have teams not only playing one game, but potentially two games on Thursday night with not advanced notice. Secondly, what's up with this for the fans, right? John Mara, the the Giants owner talked about this a little bit, which I was happy to see because he said, how are you going to get people to change this? People were sending in comments to me saying, I live in Brazil. I live in Mexico. I live in England. I live elsewhere, right? And they travel to games, even in the United States. If I live in Florida and I want to go see a Giants game in New Jersey, I fly up there. Right. And you have the schedule and you you potentially pay for hotels, you pay for flights, you pay for tickets, you pay for all this stuff. And then two weeks before it can get flexed three days early. That doesn't make much sense. Right. It's just terrible for fans. So this was tabled. They actually didn't agree to it. They talked about it a bunch, but they said, Hey, we'll look at this later on. We're not going to decide right now. So that wasn't decided on. The second thing they did was they looked at, I think it was 10 or 15 different rule changes. They implemented a couple of them. like Now there's only one cut period for training camp, so everyone will basically get cut after the the preseason games instead of multiple cuts, a few other things. And then the big topic was the Washington Commander sale. So there wasn't anything officially on the calendar. Nothing's been done. Nothing had to be agreed upon between the owners. Nothing was voted on, et cetera. But- It was talked about reportedly between a bunch of the owners, kind of hush-hush. Everyone wanted to know what was going on, what was the price, who might be coming in, what they were thinking, and so forth. But still, I think the most important thing that was going on at the NFL's annual meeting was Roger Goodell's contract extension. So this didn't actually get agreed upon this past weekend. It was reported by, I think, Adam Schefter or Ian Rappaport a few days before the meeting actually took place that they were going to be voting on an extension for Roger Goodell. And I think this is important because Roger Goodell has a super interesting story. Not only from a sports business perspective, but anyone who's a fan of sports can look at this and say, "Wow, that is fascinating." So, for those that don't know, Roger Goodell has been with the NFL for more than forty years. He started as an intern in 1982 after graduating from Washington and Jefferson College, and he was named commissioner in 2006. But here's the craziest part: he has earned roughly five hundred million dollars as the NFL's de facto CEO over the last decade plus. $500 million. That's more than any NFL player in history. It's more than Tom Brady. It's more than all of these players. He's made $500 million as commissioner. So we know there's not always been positives, but I want to run through a little bit of his story and tell you guys some background for those that may not be as familiar with it. So let's start at the beginning. Roger Goodell was born and raised in Westchester County outside of New York City. He comes from a wealthy family. His father was a a lawyer in Washington, D.C., and later served as a U.S. senator. Fun fact, he was appointed the replacement as senator to Robert F. Kennedy after he was assassinated from 1968 to 1971. And then he lost his Senate seat in 1970, 1971, and then went and continued to practice law. His mom was successful as well. His mother, she was on the board of the National Transportation Safety Board, and she did a lot of stuff for women's rights groups in Washington, D.C. But Goodell grew up and went to high school in Westchester. He actually attended Bronxville High School, which is a very good public school in Westchester County. And he went on to graduate from Washington and Jefferson College in Pennsylvania. He was an honor student, graduated with a degree in economics. But this is where it gets interesting because all of his classmates, they went and accepted typical jobs, right? Consulting, investment banking in New York City, whatever it was. But Goodell, I'm not kidding you, this sounds ridiculous. He wrote a letter to his father after he graduated, basically just thanking him for putting him through college and taking care of his education and so forth. And in the letter, this is a direct quote. You can read this on the Washington and Jefferson website, but he said, The only thing I want to do in life, other than be commissioner of the NFL, is to make you proud. That's how he ended the letter, right? So he knew right then and there. I don't know if it was a dream. I don't know what it was, but that's what he wanted to do. So what did Goodell do? He sent a letter, a typed-up letter, to the NFL office in each of the league's 28 teams asking for an internship. Now, essentially, every team turned him down. Whether they wrote back or they didn't, everyone said no. But then he got a letter back from NFL commissioner Pete Rozelle. And Pete Rosell was impressed, and he offered him a three-month internship with the NFL League office. So I'm going to read you the note, because he actually, it's been printed out, and it's been distributed over time, considering how crazy the story is. So he wrote, Dear Mr. Rozelle, I'm writing to you in reference for any job openings you may have in your office. Having just finished my undergraduate education at Washington and Jefferson College this past May, I'm presently looking for a position in the management of professional sports. Being an avid NFL fan, I've always desired a career in the NFL. I'm a great admirer of you, and it would be a great honor and pleasure to work for you in any position that may be available. Thank you for your consideration. I look forward to hearing from you respectfully, Roger S. Goodell. So he wrote that Commissioner Pete Rozelle got back to him, offered him a three-month internship. He spent the summer working for the NFL's public relations staff as an intern He claims he was essentially just clipping and copying news articles for the team, putting binders together, stuff like that. He then left after that three-month internship to work for the New York Jets on a one-year internship. So he went from the NFL League office, New York Jets, one-year internship, doing similar stuff, right? Basically, league office, whatever it was. But then he returned back to the NFL League office in 1984, and he literally never left again. He spent three years on the PR team back where he was. Then he was named assistant to Lamar Hunt who was the president of the AFC, the American Football Conference at the time. Then after those years with Lamar Hunt, Paul Tagliabue was named commissioner. And him and Roger Goodell basically became best friends, right-hand man. He held six positions from 1990 to 2001. He was the director of international development and club administration. He was a vice president of operations and business development. He was a senior vice president, and he was an executive vice president. And then after proving his value and his worth and his work ethic over 17 years, Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner, named him executive vice president and chief operating officer, COO of the NFL in 2000. So he had worked for the league office for 17 years at the time, and he was named COO of the NFL. Now, his main job when he was CEO, Goodell we're speaking about, he was responsible for NFL Ventures. NFL Ventures managed the NFL's media properties, marketing sales, consumer products, international businesses, stadium development was a huge one, special events like the Super Bowl and strategic planning. And Goodell accomplished a lot a lot of people took notice. He led expansion and realignment efforts. He did stadium development. He was a key player in the launch of the NFL Network, and he managed negotiations for not only media deals, but the CBA with the NFLPA. So basically, when you look at what the NFL has to do on an annual basis and things that are the most important, he was involved in all of them, from the CBA to media deals, to realignment, to stadium development, to media with the NFL Network, he was involved with all of that. So when Paul Tagliabue announced his retirement in 2006, The choice was pretty clear. Roger Goodell beat out four other candidates and was unanimously approved by the owners as the eighth commissioner in NFL history. At the time, Robert Kraft, who is the owner of the New England Patriots, said, "Roger got his MBA from NFL commissioners Pete Rozelle and Paul Tagliabue. That's not a bad education." So, the past 17 years as commissioner have been full of ups and downs for Roger Goodell. I think most people know this. Generally speaking, most NFL fans and players don't seem to really like him all that much. I don't think that's a hot take. I think most people probably understand that, but there's a few reasons for this, in my opinion. One, Goodell implemented a much stricter personal conduct policy for all NFL employees in 2007 when he took over. He essentially became the judge, the jury, and the executioner for all conduct-related issues, and it enabled him to hand out some of the harshest punishments in sports. But they weren't only harsh. They they were inconsistent, we'll call them, right? Right. And there's a few examples. So everyone knows about Bounty Gate. Sean Payton, and the coach of the New Orleans Saints, was suspended without pay for an entire year. They lost draft picks. They were fined. All this stuff. There was obviously Deflate Gate with Tom Brady. There was Spy Gate. There's all these football-related things. But then there was things like Josh Gordon. He missed an entire season for failing too many drug tests. And then when you compare that to some of the things that should have received more suspensions, let's talk about Ray Rice. Ray Rice is the perfect example. He received a two-game domestic violence suspension for striking his then fiance on camera. This was literally a video of this. TMZ eventually published it. People freaked out. They said, hey, how can we only do two games for this when NFL players are getting suspended a year for smoking weed? And the NFL changed it. They went a year. That actually was later overturned on appeal because a judge ruled that he, Roger Goodell, had an abuse of power and he he couldn't just use his discretion to decide these things. So that policy has been changed a little bit over time where now there's other parties involved. But that happened for a decade, over a decade, actually, where Roger Goodell was essentially just acting as the judge, jury, and executioner. He was just handing out punishments as he deemed fit. Add in the fact that a lot of the rules have changed for player safety to protect quarterbacks and encourage more scoring, and fans just aren't happy with the play, right? There's NFL roughing the quarterback hits all the time that people are upset about. And one of the funniest things, I think, when you look at the data is that when you go on Google Trends, the words no fun league, which people commonly refer to the NFL now as, literally were not searched on Google before then. Now it's searched on Google, and it's become a popular phrase, one synonymous with Roger Goodell's reign. In fact, Roger Goodell was so unpopular that ESPN ran a poll in 2015 and 61% of NFL fans believe that Roger Goodell should no longer serve as NFL commissioner. So I think there's one thing to keep in mind here, though. I don't think any of us are going to argue with all of that stuff. I think there's certainly been instances where he's been inconsistent with punishment. I think that some things could be better from a quality of play standpoint. I think that there's various things that Roger Goodell could be doing. There's various things that players could be doing better. There's things that the NFLPA could be doing better all of that. Some blame should be placed on him for sure. But I think it's important to remember who Roger Goodell works for. He works for the owners and the 32 billionaire NFL owners appear to be very happy with him. And the reason why they're very happy with him is simple. The NFL business is booming. The NFL is doing about $20 billion. So probably do around $20 billion in annual revenue this year. When Roger Goodell took over in 2006, it was six and a half billion dollars literally insane. So $6.5 billion to nearly $20 billion. That's an insane increase. And by 2027, Roger Goodell says the NFL should be doing about $25 billion in revenue. Not only that, he's successfully negotiated two CBA negotiations with the NFLPA. So every time you go to negotiate the CBA, you have the chance of having a lockout of the players in the league not being able to agree on stuff. This has happened in the NFL. This has happened in the NBA. This has happened in the MLB. All of the sports leagues deal with this. It's the number one thing outside of revenue-related items that the commissioners have to deal with. Roger Goodell has done it twice. Now, there was a period of time with the 2011 CBA where there was a five-month work stoppage because they, they had to negotiate this stuff. But in both cases, for both of those CBAs in 2011 and 2020, no NFL games were missed. And in fact, 2020 was extremely substantial because they added a 17th game to the season. They expanded the playoffs. They moved the revenue split a little bit down. They gave the players one extra percent for all of that stuff. But they, they, they also eliminated marijuana suspensions and so forth. So there's various things that he's done over the few years that the owners are very happy with because it's increased the revenue base for everyone else. And most importantly, the thing that's done that is the new media rights deals. So if you look over what he's done and what he's accomplished from a media rights perspective, He has signed some of the biggest media rights deals, actually probably the biggest media rights deals for sports entities in history. The NFL is going to make over $100 billion over the next 10 years from partners like CBS, Fox, NBC, ESPN, Prime, Amazon Prime, and YouTube TV. YouTube TV just signed a $2 billion a year deal for Sunday ticket. This is insane, insane, insane. In 2021, the NFL made over $10 billion. From media rights, it was by far their biggest revenue driver. Secondary was tickets and luxury suites at about $3.5 billion. Sponsorships represented about $2 billion. And then another category, which includes things like concessions, parking, merchandise, NFL licensing, gear, stuff like that, was $1.6 billion. So the things that really, really, really matter, you zoom out and you say, hey, I'm just going to focus on the most important stuff. That is the CBAs and that is the media rights. And the reason why those are so important is because they go hand in hand. And we're going to talk about that with the NBA in the next topic, because when you have labor peace over a significant period of time, it gives the networks clarity and it gives them vision around what can be accomplished. So with all of that said, I want to get back to his salary and his compensation package. Because that's really where he's earned his money. It's been through the media deals, the expansion of revenue, what these franchises can now sell for. We're talking about the Washington Commanders, a franchise that has been terrible over the last few years, decades, really. Dan Sander has been objectively one of the worst owners in sports. That's a $6 billion franchise, a $6 billion franchise. You don't need to win. You don't need to do any of this stuff. They have national media deals. All the teams split the money, and they're a $6 billion to $7 billion franchise, and there's people lining up out the door to buy them. There's three, four, five, six bidders that are going to bid on these franchises because of how valuable they are. You're looking at the Dallas Cowboys; that franchise would sell for over ten billion dollars today, right? Like these are just such valuable entities, and Goodell has made a bunch of money because of that. So, the NFL used to be uh, used to have tax exempt status, and they voluntarily relinquished that in 2015. And part of the reason why they did that was certainly public pressure. People have said, "Hey, why are you guys enabling them, the government, to get?" These tax advantages—they're obviously a sports league. They should be for profit. They make money, all of this stuff. But one of the reasons why they did that, in my opinion, they've never directly said this, is to shield executive pay because all of that was public. So Roger Goodell, over the last decade plus, has reportedly made, when you add up every single year of those public records plus what's been privately said over the last few years, he's made about five hundred million dollars in total. Five hundred million dollars. So he's been making about sixty million dollars a year plus bonuses. So The New York Times did a report, I think it was in 2021, basically saying that he was making over $100 million a year because of his ability to negotiate those new broadcasting deals. And this is not just salary. He has a bunch of other stuff written into his contract. His contract once went viral, the negotiations around his contract, because he was asking for lifetime health care for him and his family. He was asking for lifetime use of a private jet. And everyone around the NFL was like, hey, what the hell, man, dude? Like, you know, the players don't even get health insurance and you want that? And some of this stuff has been written into his contract. I don't know about the life insurance but or the health insurance, but I know that he has access to a private jet. He pays the NFL back when he uses it, but he can use it at any time. And he basically pays for fuel and the pilots and everything like that. So he has made a boatload of money. And to be honest, it's kind of deserved. You can you know say, hey, look, all these other guys would come in or girls and they would do the exact same thing. He's not special, whatever. But commissioners across sports, NBA, NHL, whatever, they all make a lot of money. They make 20-30 million dollars, potentially even 40 million dollars if you're talking about Adam Silver or someone else like that. So they can make a lot of money. So it's not surprising that he would make 60 or 100 a lot of it based on performance and stuff like that. And when you look at 60 million dollars of annual salary against the league's 19 billion dollars in annual revenue, that's 0.3% of the league's revenue base right now. It's not that much, right? So it's a small percentage given what he's done. He's been extended four times. It looks like he's going to be extended a fifth time now as NFL commissioner. I don't think anyone should be that surprised. Objectively speaking, he's done a great job for his bosses, which are the owners. He shields them from a lot of public backlash and negativity by taking it upon himself, which is why a lot of the fans and players do not like him, and he is paid handsomely for that. This episode is sponsored by Golden. Did you know that a Joe Montana jersey recently sold for over $1 million on Golden auctions? Golden is the leading and most trusted destination for some of the most significant pieces of sports and pop culture collectibles, and better yet it's not just for high-ticket items. Golden's Marketplace is open 24-7 and weekly auctions featuring authenticated and graded collectibles, all just starting at $5. That means collectors of all kinds can enjoy the same quality, convenience, and seamless user experience that Golden is known for at any price point. And here's the best part. Golden is offering no Marketplace fees for items sold up to $10,000. So vault and list your items on Golden's Marketplace now to enjoy this limited-time offer. I'm a big fan of the platform, and I think you will be too. Head over to Golden.com to get started. That's Golden, dot All right, the next thing I want to talk about is the NBA's new collective bargaining agreement. So the NBA signed a new seven-year collective bargaining agreement, CBA, with their Players Association over the weekend. This is going to promise labor peace through the rest of the decade. And as I mentioned in the last segment about the NFL, this is super, 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 super important. The NBA has a new media rights negotiation coming up. They're looking to triple the money reportedly from $25 billion deal to $75 billion deal. And labor peace is paramount for that. So the NBA announced this new deal. We've gotten like piecemeal parts of it. We don't know everything yet, but like Shams and Woj have been tweeting out and publishing different things on The Athletic and ESPN talking about like Select pieces of it. I hope over time we'll get a full picture of what it looks like and and how things are changing. And when it does, I promise I will post about it. I will write about it, and I will podcast about it. But for now, I want to talk about a few things. So, if we look at what's out there today, I'm going to read off a few of the the definite things that have happened in this CBA. One, the NBA is going to essentially stop the highest spending teams from spending so much money. So, if you look at teams like the Warriors, the Clippers, whatever. Teams that are running up and against the salary cap and continuing to spend across them to add talent to the roster, they're adding in some stipulations. So they're implementing a second salary cap that's at $17.5 million over the tax line, and teams will start losing basically mid-level exception players. They won't be able to use cash in trades. They'll have to move first-round picks, or they can't move first-round picks that are seven years away. There's a few different things, but the general thought is to limit the teams from spending a ridiculous amount of money continuously over the cap. So, look, I don't necessarily agree with this, actually. I I think they're trying to create a bunch of parity, and it's been great. There's been parity in the NBA this year, but ultimately, you want teams to be spending money. You should be encouraging the teams that aren't spending money to be spending more money. It's the same problem that we have in Major League Baseball today. There's teams like the Mets who are spending $100 million more than any team in history has spent this year. They're actually paying other teams $50 million as part of their luxury tax bill. And then you have the Oakland A's who literally can't even put a roster together with their with their budget. And it's just, it's not good. There's too big of a gap. There's only a select number of teams that can actually win the world series every year because of this. The NBA is obviously a little bit different with the salary cap and luxury tax limits some of that, but you should be encouraging the other teams to be spending more money rather than hurting the teams that are paying more money year after year after year. So that is number one. There's a bunch of other things. They limited uh, or they actually eliminated marijuana testing. So players will no longer be tested for weed. That was a funny joke over the weekend. There were some great memes and, and stuff on Twitter. One thing I do like that they did was they, one of the things has been curbing load management over the last few years. If you look at load management, there's a bunch of players, whether it's Kawhi Leonard or LeBron James or whoever it is, that sit out back to backs. They don't, they don't play all of these games. And to get ahead of that, the NBA is now tying eligibility for postseason awards to how many games you play. So to be eligible for awards like the MVP and so on, you need to play a mandatory of 65 games. And they're also adding in an in-season tournament. So there's going to be a tournament during the middle of the season. It could start as early as 2023, 2024. It'll include pool play games, and there'll be bonuses for the teams that win it. I think the final four, there's rumors that it may be in Vegas. And players will be individually rewarded, so there was a rumor that each player was going to get a million bucks if their team wins, but I think it's been reduced to 500k. I could be wrong on that, but it's going to be some money. it's going to be a somewhat substantial amount, whether it's 500 k or a million bucks that's that's obviously substantial and I think it's a good idea it's going to be interesting because it'll it'll add a little bit of juice to the regular season, which always doesn't have some, so it'll gear people up for the second half of the season in the playoffs. I think it's a good idea. But the thing that I'm most interested with this is Shams tweeted out something on Saturday night that I thought was really interesting. He said, game changer. The league's new collective bargaining agreement will give players the ability to invest in NBA and WNBA teams, as well as promote and or invest in sports betting and cannabis companies. So again, NBA players will now be allowed to invest, own equity in NBA and WNBA teams. And they'll also be able to promote and or invest sports betting companies and cannabis companies. So let's unpack this for a second. We don't really know what this is going to look like. Some people were jumping the gun and they're like, oh, if you're the Lakers, you're going to hand out equity and someone's going to come to your team and that's like weird and should that be allowed? I don't know. That's not what's going to happen. They're basically going to open a fund and similar to the way the NBA does it today, you're going to be able to allow to make private equity investments through the NBA Players Association's fund. So the NBA PA, I'm assuming is going to go to a team like the Sacramento Kings who have already sold the number of these stakes and say, we want to buy a 5% stake in your team. And then they're going to go raise a bunch of money from the players and the players are going to be able to own equity in that team through a vehicle, but they're not going to own it directly. And they're not going to go play for a team for equity. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that would create a bunch of unnecessary headaches for the league office. So that's number one. We'll see more details on that, but I imagine that's how it's going to work. Number two is sports betting and cannabis companies. This is like a weird line, right? Everyone was tweeting, oh, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Now, players, I don't think they're going to be like intentionally trashing games because FanDuel has a lot of money on one side of a bet and they're playing the other side. Like there's just not that much power over them. I don't think they care about that stuff. But I do think that this was probably done because if you look at what's happened in the NFL and other places like that. This is revenue that's been additional, that players have been completely secluded from, and they've been criticized. These leagues have been criticized for taking as much money as they are. The NFL is a perfect example, right? Calvin Ridley was suspended an entire year, gave up millions and millions and millions of dollars in salary, and the NFL is out there signing deals with all these different sports books. There's commercials everywhere. There was billions of dollars bet on the Super Bowl, and the NFL is directly benefiting in their pockets from all of this stuff. Now, the the players still can't bet on games. That's not allowed. And the NBA and the NFL and all the other leagues are going to take that seriously because the integrity of the game is the most paramount thing that there is. So we'll see what happens. I actually don't really think this is as huge of a deal. Like, sure, maybe there's some players that go sign endorsement deals with Randall or DraftKings or whoever it is. There certainly will be if they're allowed to. But I don't think that there's going to be anything outside of that. It's, it's strictly regulated. The, the NFL knew immediately when Calvin Ridley was placing bets, like there's, there's protocols that are in place for basically all the sports books to notify the leagues. There's people at the leagues that are watching this stuff. If you're a professional athlete and you're listening to this podcast, do not bet on games. You will get caught. You will 1000% get caught. The NFL caught Calvin Ridley very quickly. They were alerted through it, through their own internal measures, plus the sports book. And the same thing will happen in any of them. Don't bet on the games. It's stupid. You'll get in trouble. You'll lose your salary and so forth. So those are the changes. Again, I'm going to update you guys more as more stuff comes out. Again, though, I think the most important part, if you have one takeaway from all of this, is that the NBA now has labor peace through the end of the decade. It's a seven-year agreement. I think there's an opt-out after year six. They're about to agree to new deals with the media partners. That's the most important. The Players Association also got a little bit of additional income. They got some stuff included in basketball-related income. You'll, You'll hear it referred to as BRI which is important because that gives them a little bit more money to split up amongst the players. But at the end of the day, the media deals are what's going to make the big difference. When the NBA's they agreed to their last media deals in the 2000s, franchise valuations doubled. And that's what's going to happen again. I fully believe it. I've written about this. I've talked about it. I've tweeted about it, so forth. Valuations are going to rise a lot, and the players are going to benefit from that. So I think that this is a good sign for the players. It's a good sign for the league. It's a good sign for the owners. It's a good sign for the fans. It's a good sign for the media partners. People should be happy about this, and we'll see what happens over the next seven years. This episode is sponsored by SoFi. SoFi is the all-in-one finance app, helping you bank, borrow, invest, and save. SoFi's mission is to help members achieve financial independence and realize their ambition, all-in-one app. It's the single app you need to get your money right. I'm a SoFi member, and I love it. SoFi is legit, and they comply with the strict regulatory standards of the FDIC, so you can be sure that your money is safe. Visit SoFi.com slash Joe Pompiliano to learn more. That's SoFi.com slash Joe Pompiliano. All right, let's get back to this episode. Okay, the last topic for today's podcast is going to be about Stephen Curry, Golden State Warrior star, signing a renewal extension of his agreement with Under Armour. So Nick DePaula at ESPN tweeted about this and broke this news on March 30th. I think it was Friday. And he said that Stephen Curry signed an agreement with Under Armour that extends beyond his playing days and into his retirement. The exact terms were not disclosed, but the new agreement could be one of the richest ever endorsement deals in sports once annual base pay, stock equity, royalties on signature products, and on-court incentive bonuses are tallied. So again, numbers weren't thrown out. Stephen Curry was reportedly making about $20 million a year before this on the previous deal. Now Under Armour is giving him a new deal that could potentially become a lifetime deal if they hit significant milestones within the agreement, both on Under Armour's side, but also Stephen Curry's side. So for those that aren't familiar, Under Armour launched the Curry brand in 2020. They initially partnered with Stephen Curry in 2013. There's this famous story about how Nike went to go pitch him, and not only did they say his name wrong, but they had a slide in the presentation that still had Kevin Durant's name in it. It was basically just a reused presentation that someone put together. He felt disrespected. His dad was in the room, Dell. And he basically said, we knew they didn't care. We tuned them out from there. We were done. We were leaving, whatever. So he signed with Under Armour in 2013. Under Armour in 2013 was like, you know, becoming more popular. But they were not the big dog. They certainly were smaller than Nike, Adidas, and all these other businesses. So people were a little bit shocked. They didn't have this big basketball division. Curry was their guy. This was before he was MVP. This was before he won the finals, before any of that. Curry blows up, of course. Under Armour is extremely satisfied with it. They end up making him the president of the Curry brand in this latest deal, but the Curry brand was was born out of Stephen Curry's career, right? Like his unhappiness with Under Armour is the easiest way to think about it. they had been partners for seven years. In 2020, he went to them and he said, hey, look, there's been a bunch of things going on with your business. You've switched CEOs three or four different times. Now the stock is down tremendously, maybe 50, 60% from its all-time high. The basketball division, I'm holding you guys up. I want to do more. I want to have a business like Michael Jordan has with Nike. And that's what the game, they launched the Curry brand. They're allowing him now to sign other athletes. He's on his 10th signature shoe with Under Armour, which I think only a couple athletes, maybe, you know, less than 10 basketball players in history have gotten to their 10th signature shoe. So it's been extremely impressive. He's made $473 million in his NBA career. So if they're signing an agreement that could be worth more than that, LeBron reportedly signed a billion dollar deal with Nike for the rest of his life. Stephen Curry is probably going to get somewhere between $500 million and a billion dollars too, right? Like that's just, you know, how it works. He has one of the best-selling basketball shoes in the world. And I really think the important part here is that Stephen Curry's brand, an under brand, I believe would be even bigger if Kevin Durant didn't go to Golden State. And there's been some people in the media that have talked about this in the past. The idea that shoe brands like Nike and others Have a lot more power in the NBA than other people think. And when you look at just kind of what happens on a shoe deal, you're LeBron James. You sign with Nike when you're 18 years old. LeBron James is going to retire in a couple of years. He's been with Nike his entire career and he has signed a lifetime deal. So from 18 until the day he dies, he has a deal with Nike. How many times has he switched teams? How many teams has he played for? He's played for the Cavs, he played for the Heat, he played for the Cavs, he plays for the Lakers. He's played for a few different teams. He continuously switches. Other players do it too. Kevin Durant, he's with Nike. How many teams has he played for? He's played for two teams this season alone, right? So the reason I say that is because these players are with their shoe brand longer than they're with their team. Not only are they are they, are they with their shoe brand longer than with their team, in a lot of cases, they get paid more money. Again, LeBron James, he's going to get paid over to a billion dollars throughout his entire career by Nike. How much has he made an NBA salary? Not a billion dollars. He won't make a billion dollars in NBA salary. So your loyalty, the question is like, where does it lie? Does it lie to you with your shoe brand? Does it lie with your team? What is your focus on? And a lot of people in and around the NBA will tell you that Nike was very happy when Kevin Durant went to Golden State because Stephen Curry was this star. He was this up and coming guy. They stopped saying, Hey, I want to shoot like Kobe. I want to shoot like Michael. I want to and kids were literally yelling. I I know they were yelling Curry. Right when they shot something in the trash can, he was becoming that player that was just so popular that he was transcending the sport. So Nike was able to diminish that a little bit when it came to Curry and Under Armour, and not necessarily that Nike was worried that Under Armour was going to take them over, whatever it was. But when you think basketball, Nike wants you to think of them. They don't want you to think of Steph Curry. They don't want you to think of any of these other athletes that have other shoe deals. They want you to think of Kevin Durant. They want you to think of LeBron James. They want you to think of their athletes and their teams and their shoes. So that was a big piece. And what we've seen over the last few years is, is Curry obviously broke the three point record and he's one of the best players in the NBA today, but Under Armour as a business has not done amazing. I'm looking at, I just pulled up their stock price right here. So he signed with them in 2013. Let's call it, you know, their stock was trading anywhere between like 10 to $20 for most of 2013. It then went up a bunch in, 2015, September 25th, 2015, it hit $53, which is essentially around its all-time high. The stock's down 82% since then, 82%. Their market cap is $4 billion. $4 billion's a lot, but it's really not that much. They've struggled a lot over the last few years. They've had inventory problems. They've had marketing problems. They've shifted executives a bunch. At this point, if you're Curry, You're selling a bunch of shoes. They're paying you a bunch of money. They're letting you launch your own brand. You have your own logo. Now you're signing this deal that could potentially be a lifetime deal. What are you going to do? You're not going to go back to Nike. You're not going to go to Adidas. You're not going to go to these other places. Like That's what you're going to do. So I think it's interesting because it's going to take some time to see how this plays out. Under Armour has to execute on the business side if they really want to be a legitimate player for the long haul. I think that his shoes are good. A lot of people like them. A lot of kids play in his shoes and so forth. But ultimately, Under Armour is going to have to prove to him and prove to everyone else that they can execute the way that Nike has executed for Michael Jordan. The Jordan brand is a $5 billion a year business. It's massive. It's bigger than Under Armour is. The Jordan brand is literally bigger than Under Armour is in totality. So Nike has executed much better than Under Armour. And I imagine Stephen Curry would like to see Under Armour do something similar. Now, Measuring yourself up to the Jordan brand is almost a stupid thing to do because it's just been successful. It's one of the best sports business stories in history. So there's only a few athletes that will ever be able to achieve that probably in the history of sports. And it's just tough, right? LeBron is, is comparatively a similar player in statue to Michael Jordan and his brand is nowhere near that, right? Even if he signs his billion dollar deal, Michael Jordan's making hundreds of millions of dollars annually in endorsements from Nike. So it's a massive, massive, massive business. It's just tough. I think that Stephen Curry probably did the right thing here from a monetary perspective. He's going to make a lot of money. They're going to sell a lot of shoes. But if he's looking to build something that's like the Jordan brand, I don't know if Under Armour is the right partner, but we'll see. So later this week, we have the Masters. I'm going to be writing about that on Wednesday. I will put up a podcast also. We're going to talk about the business behind the Masters, how much merchandise they sell, the TV rides, where they leave money on the table, some of the coolest traditions, and so forth. Other than that, I hope everyone has an amazing day and an amazing week. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. I spent a lot of time reading about this stuff, researching, writing, and so forth. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but please share this stuff. It'll help us grow the podcast. It'll help us get better guests. It'll help me spend more time doing this stuff for you guys. So have a great week. Share the podcast. And thank you. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.